The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. We human beings have been selected over the history of our evolution to be friendly. Biologists literally talk nowadays about this notion of survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. Hey there, it's Friday, and this is the Next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and most of the time, I think I'd say I'm an optimist. How about you? Where do you land on the pessimist to optimist scale? When you take a long view of our species, you could come up with good reasons for either outlook. But today, we're going to hear the optimistic case from Rutger Bregman. Rutger is a Dutch historian, author, and popular TED speaker who The Guardian calls a wonderkind of new ideas. His most recent book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And in it, he sets out to prove that human beings are fundamentally good and that if we can fully embrace that idea, we can make hugely positive changes to our politics and economics. Here's Rutger. Most people, deep down, are pretty decent. Now, I know that may be hard to believe if you follow a lot of the news, because the news is mostly about exceptions, right? It's a lot about corruption and violence and terrorism. So if you watch a lot of the news and you've only been hearing about these exceptions, then you may have become a little bit cynical and depressed. There's even a term for this in psychology. Um, they call it mean world syndrome. So people who follow too much news, they tend to become more anxious and, and, and cynical. Um, but if we zoom out a little bit more, then actually I think we can find out that most people are pretty decent. Um, the reason I wrote this book, Humankind, is that in the past 15 to 20 years, there's really been this silent revolution in science. So what we've seen is that scientists from very diverse disciplines, anthropology, archaeology, sociology, psychology, they've all been moving from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more hopeful view. Now, that doesn't mean we're angels. We're, we're clearly not. We're capable of really nasty things. But there is so much more reason for hope right now if you look at the scientific evidence. And that's the reason I wrote this book. Now, you may think, well, hmm, that's interesting. This guy's written this happy, clappy, nice book about ooh, the power of kindness. But actually, believing in the goodness of humanity is a really subversive, radical act. Because they, those at the top, They've often used a cynical view of who we are to legitimize their power. If we cannot trust each other, then we need them. Then we need monarchs and generals and kings and CEOs. But we, if we can actually trust each other, if it's true that most people are pretty decent, then that means that we can revolutionize our society and move to a much more egalitarian, genuinely democratic place. We have evolved to be friendly. One of the most fascinating insights from modern evolutionary anthropology and biology is that we human beings have been selected over the history of our evolution to be friendly. Biologists literally talk nowadays about this notion of 
survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. The scientific term here is self-domestication. Now, I think we all know what domestication is, right? You've got goats, you've got sheep, you've got chickens. And over you know, a very long time, again, centuries, millennia, we selected the tamest, we selected the friendliest uh, to, be, uh, to be bred. And so domestication, well, you start with a wolf and you end up with a chihuahua. That's basically what it is. And biologists have known that there are specific traits that are involved with domestication. So domesticated species have thinner bones, smaller brains, and on average, they just look a bit cuter, you know, friendlier, puppyish. And then you look at us and you look at skeletons of humans that have been excavated, you know, from 50, 40, 30, 20, 10,000 years ago, and you see the puppification of humanity. I, I've come up with a term for this, and I hope I'll remember it by history um, or go down in the annals of science, because I think the best way to describe this is to say that we are homo puppy. Now, it sounds like, you know, something that may not be very advantageous if you want to survive as a species to become friendlier and to become smaller and cuter and actually a little bit weaker and have smaller brains. But turns out that actually this is our true superpower because our friendliness, our ability to work together, you know, that's the reason why we built pyramids, we built spaceships and cathedrals and you name it. And while probably the Neanderthals are gone, it's really what distinguishes us as a species. Most of us are incapable of violence, or at least we find it really, really hard. Now, I know I mean, if you've watched a lot of Hollywood movies or series like Game of Thrones, then it's easy to get the impression that deep down we human beings were just savages and that, you know, just below the surface, there's a Nazi or a monster or an animal in each and every one of us. This is called veneer theory. The notion that our civilization is only a thin veneer and that as soon as something happens, a crisis, a war, a natural disaster, you name it, that we review our true selves and we start engaging in some kind of war of all against all. Now, this is really fundamentally wrong because if you actually look at the psychology of violence, it turns out we find it quite difficult. Now, with food, you don't have to explain any anyone why food is good for you, right? We like food because without food, we die. Same is true for sex. I mean, sex gives pleasure because obviously, if we don't stop having sex, then we go extinct as a species. But with violence is interesting. So what we know from the history of warfare is that often soldiers don't really manage to fire their guns. There's this fascinating study that was done by British historian and, and Colonel um, S.L.A. Marshall during the Second World War, and he discovered that only 15 to 25% of soldiers actually managed to fire their guns, and the others just couldn't do it. Now, his findings were controversial, I should say that. You know, it seems he was more an intuitive thinker than a great statistician. But later researchers have backed it up and have found, you know, more evidence that indeed just average soldiers who've just been drafted, they often can't do it. They, they really can't do it. Now, there are ways to overcome this with distance. So it's easier to use an artillery device, push a button, kill a lot of people far away. But if people come too close, you know, we, we can't do it, especially bayonets. For me, this one was one of the most interesting findings. 
is that most bayonets throughout history have probably not even been used because people just can't do it. And then if soldiers do manage to kill, if they, if they somehow you know, overcome their tendency against violence, then uh, they're often traumatized by it. So as I said, we like food, we like sex, because it's clearly good for us. But then it's interesting that if we are violent, then soldiers often come back with PTSD, which suggests to me that even though we are capable of the most horrible thing as a species, right? We can be one of the cruelest species in the whole animal kingdom. It's not what we're born to do. What you assume in other people is what you get out of them. There are some ideas in our world that are just true or false. You know, no matter what you think about it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. That's, that's right, just true. You know, it doesn't really matter what you think about that. Same is true, you know, about what happened on 9-11 or, you know, when Kennedy was killed. People can have all kinds of conspiracy theories. But, you know, facts do exist. But then there are also ideas where it's all about whether we actually believe them, yes or no. Because if we do believe them, then they can become self-fulfilling prophecies. And when if we don't, then, well, they don't turn out to be true. So we've got the examples, obviously, from uh, medicine. We've all heard about the placebo effect. If you believe that some particular medicine can really cure you, you know, then it might actually really help. We've got a lot of evidence for that. Uh, same is true for the nocebo, which is the opposite of a placebo, where you think that something's going to make you sick. And yes, it's probably going to. Um, I think that our view of human nature is a little bit similar. You know, what we assume in other people is what we get out of them. So if we assume that most people are selfish, then we'll start designing our society around that idea. We'll start building schools and workplaces and democracies and even prisons around this idea and we'll bring out the worst in each and every one of us. I think we can turn this around because if we actually assume that most people are pretty decent, we can maybe you know design very different institutions. So to give you one example, in my book, I talk about this uh, healthcare organization in the Netherlands called Buurtzorg, where the founder has decided a couple of years ago to basically ditch the management and work with self-directed teams of 12 to 30 nurses that just completely decide for themselves you know, who they want to hire as colleagues, what they're planning for the next week is going to be, what kind of additional education they need. And it sounds very utopian, but actually they're the most effective healthcare organization in the Netherlands right now with 15,000 employees, higher quality healthcare at a cheaper cost, higher salaries for the employees, and they've been voted five times as best employer of the year. So it is interesting what you can do once you update your view of human nature and say, wait a minute, I think we can actually trust our employees and I think we can rely on their intrinsic motivation. I think you can do something similar in education, by the way. Often our schools are still sort of designed around the idea that, you know, kids don't really want to learn, that they're not naturally curious. So we've built these institutions with classrooms where we, you know, sort people by age and academic level, and we have this hierarchy, we have a curriculum, and we basically try to shove knowledge down, you know, kids' throats, or we sort of try to 
yeah, put this information in their heads, and then you're not really relying on their own curiosity. So can we do this differently? I think the answer is yes. There's a long and very interesting tradition of schooling that we call democratic schooling, where, you know, kids get the freedom to basically do what they want. And I was quite skeptical about that in the first place because I thought, you know, then they're probably going to watch Netflix all day and do nothing. But turns out that actually there are a lot of great examples of these kind of schools where a lot of learning happens, but then just a lot of that happens autonomously because kids are naturally curious. No one needs to sort of pay, you know, a toddler uh, to learn how to walk or learn how to talk, you know. Kids just naturally want to do that because they are curious. That is deeply embedded within human nature. But then the sad thing is that often we seem to lose these natural curio this natural curiosity and uh, maybe that's not inevitable maybe uh, we can move to a different kind of society but it'll always start with changing our view of human nature because ideas are never merely ideas they tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies we are as a species the stories that we tell ourselves you should be scammed a couple of times in your life I know that it's easy to be distrustful of other people, but I think that it's a good rule for life that when in doubt, you should just assume the best. Why? In the first place, because you'll be right most of the time, because most people are decent and most people can be trusted. This is exactly what makes our society so successful. I mean, if we would sort of have to distrust everyone all the time, then you know nothing would ever get done. You would have to, you know, draw up contracts for even the smallest of interactions, and that's not going to be very successful. Um, but then there are obviously some people out there who are professional con artists, and they can only do their work because we just tend to trust each other all the time, right? They just, they just use that. Um, then the question is, how do you make sure that you won't be conned? Uh, I, I re read a book a while ago by Maria Konnikova. She's a great social psychologist. And she'd been, you know, researching for four years how professional con artists do their work. And she was asked in an interview um, whether she had become, you know, really scared to be ripped off and, and be conned and be, <laughs> be the victim of a scam. Um, because she, obviously, after four years of research, knows all about all the different methods that these, you know, very smart con artists use. But she said, and I found this fascinating, she said, you know what? I realized that being conned a couple of times in your life is probably collateral damage. It's probably just a price that we'll have to pay. Because what's the alternative? Do you really want to live a whole life distrusting other people all the time. Well then, sure, then you'll never be gone, then you'll never be scammed, but you won't really be able to build anything either. So if you've never been conned, if you've never been the victim of a scam, then maybe you should ask yourself, should I see a therapist? Is my basic attitude to life trusting enough? And if you have been conned, and you know, it's happened to me a couple of times, and I just, I don't know, I remember the, the shame, you know, that you always feel afterwards, like, oh God, how could I have been so stupid? No, 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 don't be ashamed, be proud. This is actually what makes our society successful. It's collateral damage. Thank you, Rutger. 
All right, everyone. I hope that gives you a positive spin as you head into your weekend. Next week, we'll be back with a bunch of new ideas for you. In the meantime, remember to check out our Next Big Idea app and sign up for my newsletter using the link in the episode notes. This week's episodes were written by me, Michael Kovnat, and edited by Caleb Bissinger. The Next Big Idea Daily is part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. See you Monday.